0: Part two, chapter four of Australia Felix. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Australia Felix by Henry Handel Richardson. Part two, chapter four. It was an odd and inexplicable thing that business showed no sign of improving. Affairs on Ballarat had, for months past, run their usual prosperous course. The western township grew from day to day, and was straggling right out to the banks of the Great Swamp. On the flat, the deep sinking that was at present the rule—some parties actually touched a depth of three hundred feet before bottoming—had brought a fresh host of fortune-hunters to the spot, and the results obtained bid fair to rival those of the first golden year. The diggers' grievances and their conflict with the government were now a turned page. At a state trial all prisoners had been acquitted, and a general amnesty declared for those rebels who were still at large. Unpopular ministers had resigned or died, a new constitution for the colony awaited the royal assent, and pending this two of the rebel leaders, now prominent townsmen, were chosen to sit in the Legislative Council. The future could not have looked rosier. For others, that was. For him, Mahony, it held more than one element of uncertainty. At no time had he come near to making a fortune out of storekeeping. For one thing, he had been too squeamish— From the outset he declined to soil his hands with surreptitious grog-selling, nor would he be a party to that evasion of the law which consisted in overcharging on other goods and throwing in drinks free. Again he would rather have been hamstrung than stoop to the tricks in vogue with regard to the weighing of gold-dust, the greased scales, the wet sponge, false beams, and so on. Accordingly he had a clearer conscience than the majority, and a lighter till but even at the legitimate ABC of business he had proved a duffer. He had never, for instance, learned to be a really skilled hand at stocking a shop. Was an out-of-the-way article called for, ten to one he would run short of it, and the born shopman's knack of palming off or persuading to a makeshift was not his. Such goods as he had he did not press on people. His attitude was always that of, "'Take it or leave it,' and he sometimes surprised a ridiculous feeling of satisfaction when he chased a drunken and insolent customer off the premises, or secured an hour's leisure unbroken by the jangle of the store-bell. Still, in spite of everything, he had until recently done well enough. Money was loose, and the diggers, if given long credit when down on their luck, were in the main to be relied on to pay up when they struck the lead or tapped a pocket. He had had slack seasons before now, and things had always come right again. This made it hard for him to explain the present prolonged spell of dullness. That there was something more than ordinarily wrong first dawned on him during the stock-taking in summer. Hempel and he were constantly coming upon goods that had been too long on hand, and were now fit only to be thrown away. Half a dozen boxes of currants showed a respectable growth of mould. A like fate had come upon some flitches of bacon, and not a bag of flour, but had developed a species of minute maggot. Rats had got it his coils of rope, one of which, sold in all good faith, had gone near causing the death of the digger who used it. The remains of some smoked fish were brought back and flung at his head with a shower of curses by a woman who had fallen ill through eating of it. And yet, in spite of the replenishing this involved, the order he sent to town that season was the smallest he would ever given. For the first time he could not fill a dray, but had to share one with a greenhorn, who, if you please, was setting up at his very door. He and Hempel cracked their brains to account for the falling off, or at least he did. Afterwards he believed Hempel had suspected the truth and been too mealy-mouthed to speak out. It was Polly who innocently, for of course he did not draw her into confidence, Polly supplied the clue from a piece of gossip brought to the house by the woman her murder. It appeared that at the time of the rebellion, Mahony's open antagonism to the Reform League had given offence all round to the extremists, as well as to the more wary, on whose behalf the League was drafted. They now got even with him by taking their custom elsewhere. He snorted with indignation on hearing of it, then laughed ironically. He was expected, was he, not only to bring his personal tastes and habit into line with those of the majority, but to deny his politics as well. And if he refused, they would make it hard for him to earn a decent living in their midst— Nothing seemed easier to these unprincipled Democrats than for a man to cut his coat to suit his job. Well, he might as well just turn wig and be done with it. He sat over his account-books. The pages were black with bad debts for Tucker. Here, however, was no mystery. The owners of these names—Purdy was among them—had without doubt been implicated in the Eureka riot, and had made off and never returned." He struck a balance, and found to his consternation that unless business took a turn for the better, he would not be able to hold out beyond the end of the year. Afterwards he was blessed if he knew what was going to happen. The ingenious Hempel was full of ideas for tempting back fortune. Opening a branch store on a new lead was one of them, or removing bodily to Main Street. But ready money was the sine qua non of such schemes, and ready money he had not got. Since his marriage he had put by as good as nothing, and the enlarging and improving of his house at that time had made a big hole in his bachelor savings. He did not feel justified at the present pass in drawing on them anew. For one thing, before summer was out there would be, if all went well, another mouth to feed, and that meant a variety of seen and unforeseen expenses. Such were the material anxieties he had to encounter in the course of that winter, Below the surface, a subtler embarrassment worked to destroy his peace. In face of the shortage of money, he was obliged to thank his stars that he had not lost the miserable lawsuit of a few months back. Had that happened, he wouldn't at present have known where to turn. But this amounted to confessing his satisfaction at having pulled off his case, pulled it off anyhow, by no matter what crooked means. And as if this were not enough, the last words he had heard Purdy say came back to sting him anew. The boy had accused him of judging a fight for freedom from a tradesman's standpoint. Now it might be said of him that he was viewing justice from the same angle. He had scorned the idea of distorting his political opinions to fit the trade by which he gained his bread. But it was a far more serious thing if his principles, his character, his sense of equity, were all to be undermined as well. If he stayed here, he would end by becoming as blunt to what was right and fair as the rest of them. As it was, he was no longer able to regard the two great landmarks of man's moral development, liberty and justice, from the point of view of an honest man and a gentleman. His self-annoyance was so great that it galvanised him to action. There and then he made up his mind. As soon as the child that was coming to them was old enough to travel, he would sell out for what he could get and go back to the old country. Once upon a time, he had hoped, when he went, to take a good round sum with him towards a first-rate English practice. Now he saw that this scheme had been a kind of jack-o'-lantern, a marsh-light after which he might have danced for years to come. As matters stood, he must needs be content if, the passage-money's paid, he could scrape together enough to keep him afloat until he found a modest corner to slip into. His first impulse was to say nothing of this to his wife in the meantime. Why unsettle her? But he had reckoned without the sudden upward leap his spirits made once his decision was taken— The winter sky was as blue as violets again above him. He turned out light-heartedly of a morning. It was impossible to hide the change in his mood from Polly, even if he'd felt it fair to do so. Another thing, when he came to study Polly by the light of his new plan, he saw that his scruples about unsettling her were fanciful, wraiths of his own imagining. As a matter of fact, the sooner he broke the news to her, the better— Little Polly was so thoroughly happy here that she would need time to accustom herself to the prospect of life elsewhere. He went about it very cautiously, though, and with no hint of the sour and sorry incidents that had driven him to this step. As was only natural, Polly was rather easily upset at present. The very evening before he had had occasion to blame himself for his tactless behaviour— In her first sick young fear, Polly had impulsively written off to Mother Beamish to claim the fulfilment of that good woman's promise to stand by her when her time came. One letter gave another. Mrs. Beamish not only announced that she would hold herself ready to support her little duck at a moment's notice, but filled sheets with sage advice and old wives' maxims, and the correspondence which had languished flared up anew. Now came an ill-scrawled, misspelt epistle from Tilly, Doleful, too, for Purdy had once more quitted her without speaking the binding word, in which she told that Purdy's leg, though healed, was permanently shortened. The doctor in Geelong said he would never walk straight again. Husband and wife sat and discussed the news, wondering how lameness would affect Purdy's future, and what he was doing now, Tilly not having mentioned his whereabouts. "'She has probably no more idea than we have,' said Marnie. "'I'm afraid not,' said Polly, with a sigh. "'Well, I hope he won't come back here, that's all.' And she considered the seam she was sewing with an absent air. "'Why, love, don't you like old Dickie Bird?' asked Mahony in no small surprise. "'Oh, yes, quite well, but—' "'Is it because he still can't make up his mind to take your tilly, eh?' "'That, too, but chiefly because of something he said.' "'And what was that, my dear?' "'Oh, very silly,' said Polly, and smiled.' "'Out with it, madam, or I shall suspect the young dog of having made advances to my wife.' "'Richard, dear!' little Polly thought he was in earnest, and grew exceedingly confused. "'Oh, no, nothing like that,' she assured him, and with red cheeks rushed into an explanation. "'He only said, in spite of you being such old friends, he felt you didn't really care to have him here on Ballarat. After a time you always invented some excuse to get him away.' But now that it was out, Polly felt the need of turning down the statement, and added, "'I shouldn't wonder if he was silly enough to think you were envious of him for having so many friends and being liked by all sorts of people.' "'Envious of him? I? Who on earth has been putting such ideas into your head?' cried Mahony. "'It was Mother thought so. It was while I was still there,' stammered Polly, still more fluttered by the fact of him fastening on just these words. Mahony tried to quell his irritation by fidgeting around the room. "Surely, Polly, you might give up calling that woman mother, now you belong to me-I thank you-for the relationship," he said testily, and having, with much unnecessary ado, knocked the ashes out of his pipe, he went on, "It's bad enough to say things of that kind, but to repeat them, love, is in even poorer taste." "Yes, Richard," said Polly meekly. But her amazed inner query was, "Not even to one's own husband?" She hung her head till the white thread of parting between the dark loops of her hair was almost perpendicular. She had spoken without thinking in the first place, had just blurted out a passing thought. But even when forced to explain, she had never dreamt of Richard taking offence. Rather, she had imagined the two of them, two banded lovingly against one, making merry together over Purdy's nonsense. She had heard her husband laugh away much unkinder remarks than this— and perhaps if she had stopped there and said no more it might have been all right. By her stupid attempt to gloss things over she had really managed to hurt him and had made him think her gossipy into the bargain. She went on with her sewing, but when Mahony came back from the brisk walk by means of which he got rid of his annoyance, he fancied, though Polly was as cheery as ever and had supper laid for him, that her eyelids were red. This was why the following evening he promised himself to be discreet— winter had come in earnest, the night was wild and cold. Before the crackling stove the cat lay stretched at full length, while Pompey dozed fitfully his nose between his paws. The red cotton curtains that hung at the little window gave back the lamplight in a ruddy glow. The clock beat off the seconds evenly, except when drowned by the wind, which came in bouts, hurling itself against the corners of the house. And presently, laying down his book, Polly was too busy now to be read to— Marnie looked across at his wife. She was wrinkling her pretty brows over the manufacture of tiny clothes, a rather pale little woman still, none of the initial discomforts of her condition having been spared her. Feeling his eyes on her, she looked up and smiled. Did ever any one see such a ridiculous armhole? Three of one's fingers were enough to fill it, and she held the little shirt aloft for his inspection. Here was his chance. The child's coming offered the best of pretexts taking not only the midget garment but also the hand that held it he told her of his resolve to go back to england and re-enter his profession you know love i've always wished to get home again and now there's an additional reason i don't want my our children to grow up in a place like this without companions or refining influences who knows how they would turn out he said it but in his heart he knew that his children would be safe enough and polly listening to him made the same reservation "'Yes, but our children. "'And so I propose, as soon as the youngster's old enough to travel, "'to haul down the flag for good and all, "'and book passages for the three of us in some smart clipper. "'We'll live in the country, love. "'Think of it, Polly, a little gabled, red-roofed house "'at the foot of some Sussex down, "'with fruit-trees and a high hedge around it, "'and only the oast-houses peeping over. "'Doesn't it make your mouth water, my dear?' "'He had risen in his eagerness, "'and stood with his back to the stove, his legs apart.' And Polly nodded and smiled up at him, though truth to tell the picture he drew didn't mean much to her. She had never been in Sussex, nor did she know what an oast-house was. A night such as this, with flying clouds and a shrill piping wind, made her think of angry seas in a dark ship's cabin, in which she lay deathly sick. But it was not Polly's way to dwell on disagreeables. Her mind glanced off to a pleasanter theme. "'Have you ever thought, Richard, how strange it will seem when there are three of us?' You and I will never be quite alone together again. Oh, I do hope he'll be a good baby, and not cry much. It will worry you, if he does, like Hempel's cough, and then you won't love him properly. I shall love it, because it is yours, my darling, and the baby of such a dear little mother is sure to be good.' "'Oh, babies will be babies, you know,' said Polly, with a new air of wisdom which sat delightfully on her. Marnie pinched her cheek. "'Mrs. Marnie, you're shirking my question.' "'Tell me now, should you not be pleased to get back to England?' "'I'll go wherever you go, Richard,' said Polly, staunchly. "'Always. And, of course, I should like to see Mother, I mean my real Mother, again. But then Ned's here, and John, and Sarah. I should be very sorry to leave them. I don't think any of them will ever go home now.' "'They may be here, but they don't trouble you often, my dear,' said Marnie, with more than a hint of impatience, especially Ned, the well-beloved, who lives not a mile from your door.' I know he doesn't often come to see us, Richard, but he's only a boy and has to work so hard. You see, it's like this. If Ned should get into any trouble, I'm here to look after him, and I know that makes Mother's mind easier. Ned was always her favourite. And an extraordinary thing, too. I believe it's the boy's good looks that blind you women to his faults.' "'Oh, no, indeed it isn't,' declared Polly warmly. "'It's just because Ned's Ned—the dearest fellow, if you really know him.' and so your heart's anchored here, little wife, and would remain here even if I carried your body off to England.' "'Oh, no, Richard,' said Polly again, "'my heart would always be where you are, but I can't help wondering how Ned would get on alone, and Jerry will soon be here too now, and his younger still, and how I should like to see dear Tilly settled before I go.' Judging that enough had been said for the time being—' Marnie reopened his book, leaving his wife to chew the cud of innocent matchmaking and sisterly cares. In reality, Polly's reflections were of quite another nature. Her husband's abrupt resolve to leave the colony, disturbing though it was, did not take her altogether by surprise. She would have needed to be both deaf and blind, not to notice that the store-bell rang much seldomer than it used to, and that Richard had more spare time on his hands. Yes, trade was dull, and that made him fidgety. Now, she had always known that some day it would be her duty to follow Richard to England, but she had imagined that day to be very far off, when they were elderly people and had saved up a good deal of money. To hear the date fixed for six months hence was something of a shock to her. And it was at this point that Polly had a sudden inspiration. As she listened to Richard talking of resuming his profession, the thought flashed through her mind, "'Why not here?' why should he not start practice in Ballarat instead of travelling all those thousands of miles to do it? This was what she ruminated while she tucked and hemmed. She could imagine, of course, what his answer would be. He would say there were too many doctors on Ballarat already, not more than a dozen of them made satisfactory incomes. But this argument did not convince Polly. Richard wasn't perhaps a great success at storekeeping, but that was only because he was too good for it. As a doctor, he, with his cleverness and gentlemanly manners, would soon, she was certain, stand head and shoulders above the rest, and then there would be money galore. It was true he did not care for Ballarat, was down on both place and people. But this objection, too, Polly waved. It passed belief that anybody could really dislike this big, rich, bustling, go-ahead township, where such handsome buildings were springing up, and every one was so friendly. In her heart she ascribed her husband's want of love for it to the infradict position he occupied. If he mixed with his equals again, and got rid of the feeling that he was looked down on, it would make all the difference in the world to him. He would then be out of reach of snubs and slights, and people would understand him better—not the residents on Ballarat alone, but also John and Sarah and the Beamishes, none of whom really appreciated Richard in her mind's eye polly had a vision of him going his rounds mounted on a chestnut horse dressed in surtout and choker and hand-in-glove with the bigwigs of society the gentlemen at the camp the police magistrate and archdeacon long the rich squatters who lived at the foot of mount Buninyong. it brought the colour to her cheeks merely to think of it she did not however breathe a word of this to richard she was a shade wiser than the night before when she had vexed him by blurting out her thoughts and the present was not the right time to speak in these days richard was under the impression that she needed to be humoured he might agree with her against his better judgment or worse still pretend to agree and polly didn't want that she wished fairly to persuade him that by setting up here on the diggings where he was known and respected he would get on quicker and make more money than if he buried himself in some pokey English village where no one had ever heard of him. Meanwhile, the unconscious centre of her ambitions wore a perplexed frown. Mahony was much exercised just now over the question of medical attendance for Polly. The thought of coming into personal contact with a member of the fraternity was distasteful to him. None of them had an inkling who or what he was— and though piqued by their unsuspectingness, he at the same time feared lest it should not be absolute, and he have the ill luck to hit on a practitioner who had heard of his stray spurts of doctoring, and written him down a charlatan and a quack. For this reason he would call on no one in the immediate neighbourhood, even the western township seemed too near. Ultimately his choice fell on a man named Rogers, who hailed from Mount Pleasant, the rise on the opposite side of the valley, and some two miles off. It was true, since he did not intend to disclose his own standing, the distance would make the fellow's fees mount up, but Rogers was at least properly qualified. Half those claiming the title of physician were impotent impostors who didn't know a diploma from the Ten Commandments. Of the same alma mater as himself, not a contemporary, though, he took good care of that, and, if reports spoke true, a skilful and careful obstetrician. When, however, in response to a note carried by Long Jim, Rogers drew rein in front of the store, Mahony was not greatly impressed by him. He proved to be a stout, reddish man, some ten years Mahony's senior, with a hasty-pudding face and an undecided manner. There he sat, his ten spread fingertips meeting and gently tapping one another across his paunch, and nodding, just so, just so, to all he heard. He had the trick of saying everything twice over needs to clinch his own opinion was mahony's swift diagnosis himself he kept in the background and was he forced to come forward his manner was both stiff and forbidding so on tenterhooks was he lest the other should presume to treat him as anything but the storekeeper he gave himself out to be a day or so later who but the wife must arrive to visit polly a piece of gratuitous friendliness that could well have been dispensed with, even though Mahony felt it keenly that at this juncture Polly should lack companions of her own sex. But Rogers had married beneath him, and the sight of the Percy upstart—there were people on the flat who remembered her running barefoot and slatternly—sitting there, in satin and feathers, lording it over his own little Jenny Wren, was more than Mahony could tolerate. The distance was put forward as an excuse for Polly not returning the call, and Polly was docile as usual, though for her part she had thought her visitor quite a pleasant, kindly woman. But then Polly never knew when she was being patronised. To wipe out any little trace of disappointment, her husband suggested that she should write and ask one of the Beamish girls to stay with her. It would keep her from feeling the days long. But Polly only laughed, long, when I have so much sewing to do.' no, she did not want company. But now, indeed, she regretted having sent off that impulsive invitation to Mrs. Beamish for the end of the year. Puzzle as she would, she couldn't see how she was going to put Mother comfortably up. Meanwhile the rains were changing the familiar aspect of the place. Creeks, in summer dry gutters of baked clay, were now rich red rivers, and the yellow yarrowee ran full to the brim, keeping those who lived hard by it in a twitter of anxiety. The steep slopes of Black Hill showed thinly green. The roads were ploughed troughs of sticky mire. Occasional night frosts whitened the ground, bringing cloudless days in their wake. Then down came the rain once more, and fell for a week on end. The diggers were washed out of their holes. The flat became an untraversable bog. And now there were floods in earnest, the creeks turned to foaming torrents that swept away trees, and the old roots of trees, and the dwellers on the river-banks had to fly for their bare lives. Over the top of book or newspaper, Mahony watched his wife stitch, 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 with a zeal that never flagged at the dolly garments. Just as he could read his way, so Polly sewed hers through the time of waiting. But whereas she, like a sensible little woman, pinned her thoughts fast to the matter in hand— he let his range freely over the future of the many good things this had in store for him one in particular whetted his impatience it took close on a twelvemonth out here to get hold of a new book on ballarat not even a station has existed nor were there more than a couple of shops in melbourne itself that could be relied on to carry out your order "'you perforce fell behind in the race, remained ignorant of what was being said and done, in science, letters, religious controversy, in the great world overseas. To this day, he didn't know whether Agassiz had or had not been appointed to the Chair of Natural History in Edinburgh, or whether fresh heresies with regard to the creation of species had spoiled his chances, did not know whether Hugh Miller had actually gone crazy over the vestiges, or even if those arch-combatants, Simon Simpson, had at length sheathed their swords. Now, however, God willing, he would before very long be back in the thick of it all, in intimate touch with the doings of the most wide-awake city in Europe, and new books and pamphlets would come into his possession as they dropped hot from the press. End of part two, chapter four.